Hi everybody, Liam here. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you about a podcast called Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. If you're a fan of East Bay Yesterday, that probably means you're interested in hearing about how our history, Oakland history, has impacted the rest of the world. This show, Revolutionary Care, is a perfect example of that. The podcast dives deep into the history of how the Black Panther Party, along with local doctors and researchers, were on the forefront of raising awareness about sickle cell anemia and actually coming up with new solutions for treating this illness, which primarily affects African-Americans. The show was created by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals, and as you'll hear in the podcast, Children's Hospital has emerged over the years as an unparalleled hub of sickle cell treatment and research. So if you want to hear about how sickle cell care has evolved from community clinics set up by the Black Panthers to revolutionary new science being developed right here in Oakland, check out Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. You can find it anywhere you get podcasts, and I'll also drop a link in the show notes. Big thank you to UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals for supporting this episode of East Bay Yesterday. All right, next up, since this is Black History Month, I wanted to put out an episode that really celebrates that tradition, and I can't think of anyone who is more dedicated to that cause than Delilah Beasley. You're going to hear all about her on today's show, so I don't want to give anything away, but without her, so much of California's early black history would have been lost. So even though this episode originally aired a few years ago, I wanted to give it one more spin, because Delilah Beasley truly deserves to be honored this month. Also, uh, since this episode came out, I collaborated with a bunch of folks on a project called the Black Liberation Walking Tour. For anyone interested, there's a, there's a website, there's an app with all the details, and uh, one of the highlights of that tour is the house that Delilah Beasley lived on uh, over near MLK and uh, 34th. So if you're inspired by what you hear today, go check out the rest of the tour. It also features the, uh, the church where the Black Panthers breakfast program started, uh, the California Hotel, C.L. Dellums' house, uh, lots of other important landmarks. You can find all the details for that tour at blwt.org. One more thing. I just wanted to mention that I'll be at the New Parkway Theater again on March 23rd, this time for an event hosted by the Oakland side. There's, there's going to be a panel discussion about the role of journalism in Oakland's arts and culture scene featuring myself, along with KQED's Pendarvis Harshaw, uh, the host of Right Nowish, and also Momo Chang of Oakland Voices. Azusena Rasilla will be moderating the event, and there's going to be a surprise musical guest too. So don't wait to get tickets. As always, you can find out about all my upcoming events and my boat tours by subscribing to my free newsletter. Find the link at eastbayyesterday.com. All right, that's it. On with the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin.
I started interviewing people for this podcast about four years ago, in 2016. I've probably done about 150 interviews, and a few of the people I've talked to have died since we spoke. I have this huge list of people I'd like to interview at some point, and I worry that some of them, well, I know that some of them will pass away before I get to. My biggest concern isn't, oh, I won't get to interview such and such prominent person whose story is already well known and has been written about a ton. It's missing the regular folks, the non-famous people that I worry about. Most people have never been interviewed about their life, and beyond their immediate families, if even that, their stories won't ever be heard, which, okay, I know this episode is starting out on kind of a dark path here, but the point I'm getting to is that so much history is lost. Not just random people's stories, really important things too, like the early history of African Americans in California. There are major gaps in the historical records that honestly will never be filled. And here's the crazy thing. A huge amount of what we do know about California's black history comes from one woman, Delilah Beasley. If that name doesn't ring a bell, you're not alone. I'd never heard of her. I'm uh, born and raised here in California. And she's an important figure who was really important to preserving um, the history of African-Americans in the West, and I'd never known her. That's Dana Johnson. She's a novelist and an English professor at USC. She recently wrote a short story about Delilah Beasley. I came across her her book, uh, The Negro Trailblazers of California, which she published in 1919. Very little is known about Delilah Beasley personally, but she wrote the book, spending almost 10 years writing it, um, researching it, interviewing people. Dana's story about Delilah is fiction, but it's rooted in truth. She built it around the few details that are known about Delilah, like, for example, this story about an old coat she wore when she was crisscrossing the state, interviewing the last survivors of the gold rush generation, and digging through crumbling collections of newspapers and journals. Some of the research I read that she'd borrowed money from um, Du Bois, and I'd read W.E.B. Du Bois, and I read that she had written him in a letter particularly about just not having money and that she'd had to restitch this coat that she'd had that she wore sort of as a blanket because she couldn't afford to travel in a sleeper car. She was traveling across California researching her book and doing interviews. And so I thought that was a really interesting detail. So as a result, as an example, I wrote a scene about her thinking about this coat and being disheartened by her poverty and trying to get at the emotional toll of doing the kind of intensive work that she was doing without the proper resources. You know, trying to imagine what it must have been like to not have much money, but to really have this passion, to really feel almost this obsessive need to document 
of the Black presence in California. In her story, Dana writes, quote, The coat was dreadful, old, and unfit to wear in public. It had been bright red, but now it looked more the color of burgundy. She'd already replaced the lining twice, and she'd have to replace it again. When she traveled by train, she slept in her seat, and treating the coat as a blanket had left it dirty and stained, the stitching frayed. Delilah Beasley didn't leave a diary explaining why she devoted nearly a decade of her life to researching and writing her book, The Negro Trailblazers of California. But she was also a journalist. She had a weekly column in the Oakland Tribune called Activities Among the Negroes, which was a totally unique accomplishment at the time. Delilah was one of the very, very few black people to have a voice in a mainstream newspaper. And it wasn't hard to tell why she pushed herself so hard to make that voice heard. It's just clear that she understood that white America did not care about the Negro, did not care about our contributions, did not care about our history. And so you can just see in her life's work, even in newspapers, there's this feeling of documenting what people are doing, just kind of everyday folks and what they're contributing and what their lives are like. Almost everything in her life points to a kind of insistence on the Negro's place and contribution in California, and, you know, of course, in general. Delilah's newspaper column was all about making Black culture, Black people, visible. During an era when people of color were either ignored or portrayed negatively in the media, Delilah shined a light on everyday life. She covered weddings, birthday parties, functions like that. And she also covered the exceptional, like when black political leaders or entertainers would come to Oakland. The implicit message was, we are here. This dovetailed perfectly with her historical writing. For her, history wasn't just things that happened in the past. It was a way of establishing legitimacy, showing we have always been here. She really did prove that, by the way. She discovered that men of African descent were on the very first European ships to explore the West Coast, all the way back in the 1500s. She tracked down the names, dates, everything. Unfortunately, once she collected all her research into a book, she didn't get the response she was hoping for. She kept trying to get it published. She was hitting the pavement, trying to find publishers. And basically, she was just met with disinterest every place she she went. And so she ended up publishing the book herself again with borrowed money. And that's kind of how the book came to fruition. And then it doesn't quite sell as well as she thought. I mean, she sold very few copies. Her goal or her idea or her thinking was that it should and would be in every library in the state, in the country even. And that's just not what happened. Um, She sold very few, and when it came out, it was panned. So it eventually fell into obscurity. That's kind of why 
it's not well known. How did a woman with very little formal education and not much money manage to spend nearly a decade creating the most important document about California's Black history of its era? What's even in this dense, wide-ranging book, and why should we care now? Will Delilah Beasley ever get the recognition she deserves? We'll be looking at all these questions, and more, on today's episode of East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. That's a tough irony about this whole project is while she was out making sure we knew about so many Black people that we would never know about, we know so little about her. And that's the thing that's really tough to reconcile because I would like to know so much more about her personal life, her relatives, her mother, her father, and that information seems really difficult to come by. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the things that I was wondering about when I was reading this is, um, I wonder if her lack of knowledge or lack of connection with her own personal family history is one of the reasons why she was so driven to capture Black history writ large mm-hmm. throughout California. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's one of the reasons I write fiction because even in my own family. Like, I never knew my grandfather's on either side of my family. There's this history that's just gone, that's erased, that no one seems to know. And it's a part of my thing as a fiction writer is similar to Delilah Beasley, who's just trying to talk about people to make them live on the page, to make us understand who they were in contemporary times as well, um, because where where we are now will be the past soon enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's the it's yeah, it's that just trying to make sure that we as a black presence we're always present. The short story about Delilah that Dana Johnson wrote was packaged together in a kind of magazine along with a non-fictional summary of Delilah's life. The non-fiction part was written by Anna Cecilia Alvarez. Their project is called Trailblazer, and I'll share some more details on it later, but putting it together was a challenge because, as Dana just mentioned, Delilah didn't leave behind much personal info. What we know are, you know, just kind of scraps, both of these records that remain and then of the first few articles that Delilah wrote as a teenager. That's Anna Cecilia Alvarez, whose essay about Delilah is called Deeds Everlasting. What we do know is that she was born, actually her birth date is disputed. We know that she was either born in 1867 or 1871, and she was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. She attended a segregated public school. Um, she She was the oldest of five. Um, We know that her father was also born in Ohio, and it is likely that he was born a free free man in the antebellum area. However, her mother, we know, was born in Tennessee, and it is unclear, you know, whether she was born into slavery and then later 
was freed or what her story was, but Delilah's family is at best one generation, if not less, away from the time of slavery. We probably wouldn't even know these basic facts about Delilah's childhood if not for a local historian named Lorraine Cruchette. In the 1980s, Lorraine went to Ohio to dig through old census records and newspapers. She ended up publishing a small book about Delilah that's almost impossible to find now. Here's what else Lorraine found out. Her early life is really fascinating. Delilah's in this family that is stable and embedded in a strong community. Um, She's going to school and it's rare, at the very least, for a young Black child to start publishing writings in a local newspaper. And so it's clear that she, um, even in her early teens, was precocious and very talented. And that talent was recognized by both her family and other community members that, you know, it became possible for young Delilah to start writing articles as young as the age 13. I mean, how often do you hear of any 13 year old kid (laughs) being a a correspondent and, you know, then especially in this time. And so clearly like her, her gifts and her tenacity and also her own clarity about what, she was meant to do in this world were present from a very young age. Sadly, Delilah's budding career as a young journalist didn't last very long. Tragedy completely changed the course of her life. Her parents died nine months apart from each other when she was still a teenager. And so she went from having certain stability in her home and going to school to all of a sudden becoming an orphan. All her siblings were kind of split up and kind of separated into different homes. And after her parents' death, Delilah basically needed to seek full-time employment to support herself. Um, Pretty soon after the death of her parents, um, started working as a maid for the wife of um, a local Cincinnati judge. That's a part of the story that Dana in her in her piece really beautifully dramatizes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, imagine this young woman who clearly is very gifted, intelligent, and has a strong will and capacity to write. Going through this, what must have been a very painful and traumatic experience of losing her parents and finding herself in in the home of this wealthy white family. Even though Delilah couldn't pursue journalism anymore and had to drop out of school, she continued her education by reading books in the houses she took care of. After working as a maid for a few years, she transitioned into being kind of a mix between a healthcare worker, a masseuse, and a beautician. Most of her clients, maybe all of them, were well-to-do white women. And apparently, she was in high demand. It's interesting because how she actually arrives to California is through her work as a masseuse. She has a client who she, I think, starts working with in Ohio, who eventually moves to Berkeley. And Delilah must have been so desired and kind of talented in her capacities as this client. This white woman was like, can you please come to California and, you know, offer me your services here? And so Delilah actually first visits California and 
I mean, she basically falls in love with the mm-hmm. place. Well, she was fascinated, of course, just by the, the landscape of the place, but she also was impressed with sort of Black folks standing in California. She saw Black people living well. She saw them doing jobs that she'd never really considered. Um, she writes about seeing the first African-American firefighters and like the first African-American detective that she'd really known about. And so she just saw Black people living really well. And she saw different kinds of Black people from different countries, speaking different languages, different cultures. And so she was just fascinated by all of that. And um, she did see, though, that California was not perfect. And Mm -hmm. she understood that racism was prevalent in California as it was everywhere else. So she did have that love of the place, but she was not above critiquing the place as well. After she moved to California, Delilah Beasley must have been really, really busy. She started her historical research, she continued to do service jobs, and she wrote a weekly column. First for the Oakland Sunshine, which served the East Bay's black population, and then for the biggest paper in town, the Oakland Tribune. Reading those columns are another kind of fascinating collection of texts, and you can learn so much about the fabric of daily life among the Black community in Oakland. We would almost think of it now as almost like a newsletter, but she was really trying to compile all the goings-ons of the Black community. And the activities that would be featured would, you know, go from something like weddings and for baptisms and for different kind of like school activities to, um, broader kind of race news about, you know, people who were visiting Oakland who were prominent, prominent leaders or, you know, discussing, you know, a recent meeting of the NAACP, you know, news from Black churches. Long before the Black Power Movement or ethnic studies classes or Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, there was Delilah Beasley, alone on her pedestal at a newspaper where every other writer was white, persistently pushing week after week for respect and representation of her people. The mission of her journalistic work was an educational one. I think she really was among people, other people in that time who believed that racism was kind of stemmed from this deeply ingrained ignorance amongst white folk and if they just kind of knew of the capacities and the achievements of black people like they would kind of clearly yeah but that, that kind of re-education would happen and racism would be abated and there would be this kind of better relationship between the races oakland was less than three percent black at the time so a lot of delilah's white readers probably didn't even know any black folks She wanted to make sure that their opinions were influenced by positive stories, not just racial stereotypes, which were all too common in the media. She would just have this wonderful capacity of just kind of finding these tidbits of prideful 
meaningful news to share. Like she just kind of loves to include mm-hmm. these um, details of that, you know, that were particularly meant to just kind of communicate the achievements and brilliance of, of her community. Delilah's approach to history was similar to her column in that she mixed stories of prominent figures with regular folks. She's got profiles of people who were part of California's underground railroad system and Black Pony Express riders, alongside little biographies of dentists and teachers. Reading The Negro Trailblazers, it's such a kaleidoscope of almost scrapbooks from different families and towns and cities and time periods. Historical academic critics of her work would maybe disparage her as indiscriminate. But I think there was actually a real purpose to her wanting to include as many stories of as many Black people as she could. Gathering all these stories was not easy. She wrote to every county board of supervisors in California, asking for records on Black citizens. She only got two responses. Delilah did some of her research at academic archives like UC Berkeley's Bancroft Library, but she also traveled throughout California, sometimes by train, sometimes by horse and buggy, and sometimes just walking, to sit down with elders and get them to open up about their memories. And a lot of those memories were not happy ones. As Anna writes in her essay, in the first decades of statehood, Black people could not legally ride public streetcars, attend public schools, attend or perform in certain theaters or bars, or testify in court, in any case involving white people. So what motivated Delilah to take on this monumental task of expanding her scope beyond celebrating the present to rescuing the past from oblivion? So much of her work is just correcting. She's just constantly having to <clears throat> correct the record. I think there's two particular kind of like lies that really bug her and kind of get her to start this work. One is this notion that was being kind of, and to this day is, is a notion that you might hear touted, which is, you know, California is a free state. There was no slavery in California. You know, it was entered into the Union as, as a free state. And that was certainly something that particularly white historians were kind of promoting in which Delilah just knew was entirely wrong. That was something that incited her. And then also this specific qualification of a pioneer, which within kind of like, I don't know, like almost like California historical record keeping is a very, um, has a very particular definition and it's almost this like title of pride of you know who could really call themselves a true Californian or who had kind of been a pioneer in looking at this and seeing that there of course was no no black people were kind of included in these pioneer registries mm-hmm. um, which she kind of immediately knew was false because of course and she you know she starts the Negro trailblazers like starts by saying like as early at least as early as white people have been here Black people have been here too, and you know they have and have continued to be present in California as far as like even like any kind of consciousness of the idea of California as a place had been conceived. 
And so my suspicion is that it was the particular, the spark that really kind of got her interested in this question was just, again, seeing how Black people were entirely absent from the kind of stories that were being told about the founding. And yeah, and like, she was like, she's like, once again, like, I need to, I need to kind of correct this because if, you know, if I don't, you know, who else will? She kind of has the manuscript of the book that she's finally finished. You know, it's been nine years. She thinks she's completed the work. And then she is in Los Angeles and she's kind of attending this memorial for soldiers who had passed away in World War One, And in that service, there basically is no mention of Black soldiers serving. Yeah, even like as insinuation that um, Black people did not fight in that war. And that, again, once again, really like incensed Delilah and kind of brought her in this state of almost like, yeah, alarm of just like, oh my God, once again, I'm encountering history being erased and rewritten to write Black people out. And so she had to literally call the press that was about to print her manuscript and tell them to stop so that she could do research and write as much as she could about the history of African-Americans in the military service so she could add that chapter. This is something that Dana kind of writes about really beautifully in her story, like the sense that, you know, in some ways, the, the work of that book would never be completed. And at some point, she just had to stop because she could have continued finding and correcting and unearthing and rewriting history. One of the reasons Delilah had to stop her research and finally publish Negro Trailblazers of California was because she was broke. For years, she'd been relying on friends for financial support, including the managing editor of the Oakland Tribune, as well as other families who she'd worked for previously. And, you know, you can't borrow money forever. Another reason she had to slow down, she was getting older. This was her passion, and she, and she was totally driven to do it, but it cost her, you know, yeah. her health, especially. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, Delilah had to print the book herself, since no publisher would touch it, which meant that she also had to distribute it herself. So she hit the road again to visit bookstores and libraries. And on one of these trips, Delilah had an accident that resulted in her toe getting amputated. That limited her mobility, but not her writing. After she returned to Oakland, she got back to her Tribune column. In it, she campaigned successfully, to get other newspapers to stop using racist terms like darky. She supported the construction of housing for international students at UC Berkeley, despite neighbors' opposition. That was another victory. And of course, she wrote about the lives of regular, everyday Oaklanders. She wrote until she died, in 1934, in a hospital from heart problems. Her funeral was packed. When she passed away, I, I, I mean, again, this is now to some degree my own projection. I suspect that she thought that there was a lot of work that she didn't get to do 
And I fear that she was particularly concerned about but not only just her own personal legacy, but the history that she was really trying to to document and to share that it would survive. And so I think there's something, oof, like <laughs> it moved me to think of what she would, how how meaningful it would be to her that her work and her research, like the the stories that she was really trying to promote are still being spoken about and, are, and people still care. Delilah Beasley was laid to rest at St. Mary's Cemetery in Oakland. And although her work isn't exactly well-known, it does live on. Just one small example. A lot of my research for the episode I did about William Shorey, the West Coast's only black whaling captain, came from his profile in Negro Trailblazers. Without Delilah, that incredible story might have been lost forever. And here's the last thing. The organization that produced the Trailblazer project that included Dana Johnson and Anna Cecilia Alvarez's articles on Delilah Beasley, it's an arts organization called Clock Shop. When I was interviewing Anna, she told me that Clock Shop is currently in the process of putting together an online curriculum about Delilah so that students learning from home can have an opportunity to explore her work about these nearly forgotten chapters of California history. I'll include a link to Clock Shop, where you can check out Trailblazer in my show notes at eastbayyesterday.com. And I'll also post a photo of the house where Delilah used to live. It's at 34th Street near MLK, which is just a few blocks from where I'm reading these words and trying to continue her work right now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. First, I want to thank Julia Meltzer and Jennifer Watts at Clock Shop and the Huntington Library. Also, Dorothy Lazard at the Oakland Library, who the Trailblazer Project is very appropriately dedicated to. Also, shout out to all the other historians keeping California's history alive. Oh, and as always, huge thanks to the folks keeping this show alive through your Patreon donations. My income has taken kind of a hit due to the coronavirus crisis, so if you can afford to support East Bay Yesterday, even the smallest little donations add up, and I really appreciate it. You can find the donate link in the upper right-hand corner of eastbayyesterday.com. And don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I've got a newsletter too. And uh, just so you guys know, I would love to reach more people with this story. So if you could help me out by sharing this episode, I would really appreciate that as well. Uh, And of course, you can subscribe to this show on Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Apple, etc. All the major podcast apps and Uh, Again, if you appreciate the show, please leave a rating and review. That really helps, too. Music for this episode came from Lobo Loco. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.